This is the Monday, August 29th, 2016 episode of The History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new interview every Monday morning, as well as Classical Wisdom Wednesdays and History in Five Fridays. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. Today, our time machine is hitting the waves in the aftermath of World War II with a storybook for kids. It's called The Seagoing Cowboy, and it tells the real story of the ships that once carried weapons and soldiers turning to humanitarian cargo after the war. Livestock, farmers themselves, teachers and others, who answered the call to rebuild the devastation. Our guest is Peggy Rife Miller, the granddaughter of one of these cowboys. There were 7,000 men from the ages of 16 to 72 who pitched in under the auspices of the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration. Although this book is for ages 4 to 8, Peggy has been researching, writing, and speaking about the seagoing cowboys for 15 years, so we'll be talking about plenty of areas to keep adults interested. The seagoing cowboy reminded me of Robert Lawson's book, Rabbit Hill, which won the 1945 Newbery Medal for Excellence in American Children's Literature. That book is one of my all-time favorites. In fact, I have a lot of rabbits that live around me right now, and I'm always thinking of Rabbit Hill when I look at them. I didn't know it at the time, but that book is an allegory for providing aid to war-torn countries of Europe as the animals of the hill wonder if the new family moving into the house will share the bounty of the land or attempt to drive them from it. It's also a lot about people of different races getting along together, which was also a major theme when you think about what was going on in the First World War and the Second World War with nationalism, racism, and of course, the Holocaust. So as I said, kids will be reading one book and the adults will get some of these subtexts. And speaking of adults, we can learn more about the book and pitch into the continuing effort of the Seagoing Cowboys at seagoingcowboys.com. And for those with an eye for art, the Seagoing Cowboy is illustrated by Claire Ewart, whose work you can check out at claireewart.com. That last name is E-W-A-R-T. Okay, now that the guns have fallen silent, let's travel back to 1945 with The Seagoing Cowboy. I'm joined on the line by Peggy Rife Miller, author of The Seagoing Cowboy. Thank you for making time to talk with the History Author Show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dean. Thanks for asking. This is a book that, when I pick it up, I'm always happy I'm finding something I didn't know, and this story of the seagoing cowboy, all of them, the thousands of them, is one 
I didn't even get a whiff of when I was reading <laughs> history. And I read a lot of stuff, especially now with the internet. It's everywhere information. And yet this story is lost. I knew about the relief efforts in World War One, directed by Herbert Hoover to save starving and rebuild mm. Europe. This is 1945. The Second World War in Europe is over. So tell us, why do these seagoing cowboys volunteer to leave their comfortable homes, in many cases completely untouched by the war, and pitch in for the relief effort in Europe? Yeah, it was a variety of reasons. For some, it was just sheer adventure. Others, it was curiosity because many of the cowboys were pretty young, 16, 17, 18 years old, and they had lived through World War II just as observers, basically. So they were curious to get over to Europe and see what the results of this war had been. For others, it was financial. <laughs> they did get paid from the merchant marines. They got one penny per month. <laughs> that was just a legality to make them legal to work on the ship. But from UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, they were paid $150 per trip. So for a college kid at that time, if they could make two or three trips during a summer, they could pay for their next year of college. So for some of them, it was financial. And then for many of them, I would say probably most of them, it was to give service. They were wanting to help repair a broken world. And many of those were conscientious objectors. And this was their way of being able to serve. So, yeah, just a multitude of reasons. And these are boys as young as 16 that maybe have never left their hometown before, maybe never even seen the ocean. Exactly, right? yeah, yeah. And not just farm boys either. They came from all walks of life. But yeah, they were age of 16 on up to 72. The oldest cowboy was 72. So Wow. Yeah. How old was your grandfather at the time? He turned 50 on his trip. Middle age, the age where he already had a family, I suppose, and right. yet he took time out to do this. Yeah. One of my college roommates from Rutgers deployed to Iraq. He's now a major in the U.S. Army, and there's still the U.S. Army Veterinary Corps. Mm. And they went there to do this sort of work that the seagoing cowboys did. It's still that vital. And I think for most people today who live in cities and maybe think that their meat and that their produce come you know, off the vine wrapped already in plastic. Mm -hmm. uh, you're in an agricultural state in Indiana. So explain to people in the cities, modern people in the 21st century, where we take for granted we're going to walk in a supermarket and that's where we're going to get our food. If the thing we don't want is not on the shelves, we're bothered by it, much less nothing on the shelves. <laughs> so explain to people just how vital these animals were to the very survival of the people in the immediate aftermath of World War II. Yeah, you know, we think in terms of war, of the loss of human life, but, you know, the farm animals die too. UNRWA had done studies on the decrease of population of the animals in the European countries. So they had an idea of where the farm animals should be sent. You know, invading armies needed to eat, <laughs> And they would often commandeer the animals from the farmers as they went through the countryside. Or a lot of animals just 
simply were in the way of battle too. So without cows, there's no milk, butter, cheese. Without chickens, there's no eggs or meat. Without horses or mules, there's no draft power to be able to plow the fields. And the cowboys actually, some of them, observed people in their fields harnessing themselves to the plows and pulling them. So there was a tremendous need overseas for rehabilitation in many ways, not just livestock-wise. I mentioned your grandfather. Abe was his name. He was a seagoing cowboy. But you write that he didn't share his story with you, as many people who experienced the war, they just sort of came back, picked up their lives, and didn't want to talk about, in this case, the devastation that they'd seen or brag about themselves. You include many photographs in The Seagoing Cowboy, one from him as well as his Merchant Marine card. You mentioned how they were signed on to the Merchant Marines so that they could be on the ships. Mm -hmm. How did he inspire you, since you only learned this story after he passes away, to write it and then to choose to write it as a children's book rather than, say, a book for adults? And you choose to write it in the first person, so from a young man's perspective. Mm -hmm. Why this particular form for the book? Yeah, I didn't know my grandpa's story. He didn't talk about it. We kids didn't know to ask. And I found in my interviews that many cowboys didn't share their stories with their families for whatever reason. You know, a lot of them, I think, you know, it's just something they did, and they didn't know that it was part of a larger, more significant thing. I grew up, though, knowing about seagoing cowboys because it's a part of Church of the Brethren history, and I grew up in the Church of the Brethren. So when my father gave me this envelope of photos from Grandpa's trip to Poland in 1946, after Grandpa died, it made me curious. And when I got interested in writing for children, those pictures just kept beckoning to me. And when I wanted to write a young adult novel, I thought, what a great topic, a 16-year-old farm boy uh, going on a, a trip to Poland with, with cattle. So that triggered my research. And I knew men who had been seagoing cowboys, so I started interviewing them. And one led to another and another. And that's when I realized that this history was just hiding away in people's minds and drawers and attics. And my mission changed at that point to documenting the history. And then as I kept accumulating all this information, I knew that I needed to share it. And I wanted to tell it and tell the story in just as many ways as possible. So while I was working on the novel, I was concurrently working on a picture book. And it just happened that the picture book sold first. <laughs> About the time that I was submitting the novel, it got drafted and revised and revised and revised. But the market for straight historical fiction for young adults just flew out the window. You know, if it didn't have a fantasy element or a romance, it, you couldn't sell it. So There were no vampires for the E.C. <laughs> right, Cowboys. <laughs> exactly. It was straight historical fiction. So that got put away, and the picture book was the book that got purchased then. And in terms of why I chose first person and from a young man's perspective, it's really interesting that you picked up on that, because the original manuscript that I sold to Brethren Press 
was meant to be nonfiction, and it was told from the point of view of three grandfathers who were real cowboys, one that went to Poland, one that went to Greece, and one that went to Germany, telling about their experiences. But in the editorial process, the book evolved into historical fiction from a single point of view, which was a lot more relatable for children. I chose an unnamed protagonist because he represents every cowboy. I mean, this story is a composite. Everything in the story actually happened to one cowboy or another. And then added a friend for him and added two animals as characters. And that happened because one of the illustrators that Brethren Press had contacted turned the project down but said she was interested in the manuscript but had some concerns about it. So Brethren Press asked her what the concerns were and she suggested that it be told from one character and that some animals be added to the story. And I'm just so grateful to her. Her name is Emily Arnold McCulley and she does wonderful, wonderful historical books some that she writes herself and some that she just illustrates. But I'll always be grateful to her for that because having added the character of Queenie the Horse and Hope the Heifer, it became a more powerful story being told in first person and as historical fiction. It's much more powerful than it would have been as the original nonfiction three-person story that I had started out with. You've just described a key element of the book and how you design it. Readers assume if you're writing a book for kids, it's easy. You, as you said, slap a horse maybe and a heifer on there, people probably think, and oh, sure, that was a natural. But it takes work, especially a picture book when you're working with an illustrator for your vision. So what was involved with getting those faces right? How involved were you with that eventually with your illustrator? Ah, the illustrator came in about halfway through the process with Brethren Press. Backing up a little bit about your comment on people thinking that writing picture books is easy. (laughs) People think that you just sit down and in 10 minutes you've got a simple story penned out. But it really takes a lot of time and hard work. I think it's probably one of the hardest forms to write. You have to be concise using language that a child would understand, but yet not speak down to the child. Word choice and phrasing are critical. You have to use active words that show and don't tell because you need to leave space for the illustrator to do their work. There has to be rhythm because picture books are read out loud and they need to flow off the tongue as they're read and then leaving room for the illustrator to do their work. Uh, There's parts of the story that you just simply need to leave out because uh, the illustrator can show that. So for the seagoing cowboy, the obvious starting point in, in terms of what's involved in putting a book like that together, the obvious starting point was the research. And I had already been at it for eight years when I started this manuscript in 2010, So I had a lot of material to just kind of filter through and pull one simple little story out of. There's the first draft, and then there's revisions, and then there's submissions to agents and editors. 
I did six revisions, I think, and was rejected seven times before Brethren Press bought the book in August of 2012. And I think a lot of people think that once you sell the book, your work is over, but that's far from the truth, too. Um, <laughs> that's why you're here today. Yeah. You have to keep letting people know. You can write a book, but if it sits on the shelf, it doesn't help you at all. You have to tell people it's out there. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But even before that, there's still a lot of work to do because I worked a whole year with the editor in getting the text right. We went through over 12 revisions. That's where the evolution came of changing it from three third-person characters to one single point of view. And then the illustrator came on board about that time. And while she was doing her work, I was working on the back matter with my illustrator, which is necessary for historical books. The book designer came up with the absolutely wonderful map it's in the back of the book during that time. And then there's proofs to look at. And then there's the printing process and the review period once you've got the actual printed books and then the publication. And there's planning for marketing all along the way so that when, like you say, when the, when the book actually comes out and is on the shelf, there's people who want to buy it. So, yeah, it's a long and involved process. We talked about your grandfather being a cowboy and spurring you to write this book. Your readers, who are between the ages of four and eight, your targeted readers, they may have had a great-grandfather or even a great-great-great-grandfather, the oldest cowboy being 72. Yeah. 72, that's a pretty wide range, and it's a long time ago already. So what's the reaction right now from your readers? Did you achieve your mission here to reach them and make them feel as if they're part of the story? The reaction has been absolutely wonderful. Like you said, it's a book for all ages. And I was afraid, really, that young children would not be interested in the book. I dedicated it to my grandsons, who are three and five, soon to be six, and gave them their copies of the book and read it at, at my book launch party. And I was afraid that after that, you know, it would just sit on their shelves at home unread, but my daughter called me later that week and she said, we're playing this morning and Isaac is a calf on a boat to Poland. <laughs> and she said, he wants me to be the mama cow and daddy is the seagoing cowboy and five-year-old Alton, who is just, I mean, he, he eats, sleeps, drinks, heavy equipment <laughs> decided that he would be the excavator scooping the manure. <laughs> wow. So There's a career path for you. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, and then the, But we need people to do that, right? That's the thing. Yeah. That this is not maybe the sexiest job is shooting somebody and saving an entire regiment or liberating the concentration camps, but this was a very important life and death work. Yeah. And then they were jumping off the White Cliffs of Dover too. So, you know, they're gaining some <laughs> geographical sense in it as well, but it had captured their creativity. And for that age, I think if that's what the book can do, that's what it's meant to do. And then I was asked to do some school visits for fifth graders, even some middle school kids. And I was really afraid that they just would not be interested in a picture book. But I was very pleased because they really got the message of the book and asked some just wonderful, wonderful questions. And there's a wonderful curriculum guide 
that was developed by the Blue Slip Media women that Brethren Press hired for some marketing assistance that's available on my website. That's SeagoingCowboys.com, right? Right, and teachers can use that then to help use the book in their classrooms. You're a historical consultant to Heifer International now. You can find them at heifer.org. Briefly, what's their mission and how can people get involved? Simply put, their mission is to end hunger and poverty while caring for the earth. And they have an incredibly optimistic goal of lifting 4 million families out of poverty by 2020 through the gift of livestock and training. You know, that's only three and a half years away. So it's really an, an ambitious goal. That's the word I was looking for rather than optimistic. When they go into a community, they have 12 cornerstones for just and sustainable development that they require their recipients to take training in. And these cornerstones provide training in things like gender equality and family focus, which for many of these third world countries is just unheard of because they're very male-dominated societies. But Heifer has found that as you increase the status of women, then income levels and nutrition rise. That's another of the cornerstones, training and nutrition and income, training and sharing and caring, which a lot of poverty-stricken areas don't know about, improving the environment. I mean, there's just an absolutely wonderful program that they put their recipients through. And the, the main cornerstone, which has been in place from pretty close to the beginning, is that of passing on the gift, where a recipient agrees that they will pass on the first female offspring of their animal to another family. So that just exponentially increases the impact of the program and not only pass on the animal but pass on training as well. Now it's just an incredible organization that focuses on the transformation of communities and there have just been incredible transformations take place in countries like Nepal and Cambodia and Uganda and as to how people can get involved there are many levels of involvement. The easiest and simplest way is just simply to donate, and that can be done at Heifer's website, www.heifer.org. And they have a wonderful page on their website called What You Can Do. And on that link, there's a lot of options to choose from. You can be involved in fundraising. They produce what's called the most important gift catalog in the world that a lot of people get at Christmas time, where you can, in essence, give an animal. You can give somebody a cow, or you can give somebody chicks, or rabbits, or ducks, or whatever. But what you're doing is giving a gift to Heifer International, who gives that animal then to a family in need. I believe you can even do bees. Yes. Uh-huh. which uh, help pollinate. You have honey, all kinds of things. Yes, right. we've done this at work a couple of times. Uh-huh. So that's been great. And it's right. very rewarding if people don't realize it, but it is very rewarding. Yeah. They've also got a wonderful read-to-feed program for schools where classrooms or a whole school can sign up for the program. And 
they have a curriculum that goes with it. So the children get people to sign up to sponsor them to read so many hours or whatever. And then they get the donations from that. Then there's an educational aspect where the children learn about the poverty in the poverty-stricken areas of the world. The money then goes to Heifer, and it's just an incredible opportunity for children and schools to be involved in that way, too. So, yeah, uh, people can go to the website, and there's just a whole myriad of ways from simply donating to actually becoming a Heifer volunteer. Yeah. My guest is Peggy Reif Miller, and her book for young readers is The Seagoing Cowboy, with illustrations by Claire Ewart. You can visit her at seagoingcowboys.com. The Children's War blog writes, quote, Claire Ewart's full-color illustrations are bright, light, and airy, reflecting the optimism of the seagoing mission, while also capturing the full range of emotions felt by humans and animals alike on this voyage. I love the little smile on Queenie, the horse that John's father had donated to the program without telling his son, and John and Queenie see each other on the ship for the first time, unquote. Peggy, an author's story lives in the mind long before it comes to print. You really invoke the childhood watercolors in The Seagoing Cowboy. It's water, so already you're thinking watercolor. <laughs> it just works on many mm, levels, right? Yeah. This is your first children's book. Really, this is a labor of love. And you're working not with the illustrator you mentioned, but veteran illustrator Claire Ewart, who's done several books. This character that you've lived with, that you're writing in the first person, you first see his face as illustrated by somebody else. How did that go back and forth? Oh, she is absolutely wonderful. I just feel so blessed to have her as my illustrator. You know, normally an author has absolutely zero say in the illustration process. It's an arranged marriage, in essence, <laughs> where the editor and publisher will select the illustrator, and normally there's no contact at all between illustrator and author. But Brennan Press hadn't done a picture book in about a decade, and that's not their normal thing to publish. They picked up this book because it related to the Brethren history. So they wanted my input along the way because they knew that I've been active in the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators. So I gave them a list of my dream illustrators. And along the way, one of my writer friends here in Indiana, Helen Frost, who writes absolutely wonderful historical novels in verse for children, recommended Claire to me. I, I hadn't known Claire before that. So I passed her name on to Brethren Press, and when they contacted her, she was very interested because she is a Heifer International supporter and lover. So it, it was just a wonderful fit. She understood the story from the start. So after she had said that she was interested and they were working on the contract, my publisher and I drove over to Fort Wayne, where she's at, and met her and got to see her studio and how she works and the other things that she had been working on. And I provided Claire then with several, uh, well, a couple hundred, I'm not sure how many actually, images that I had scanned from cowboy photo albums 
that they have shared with me. I've got thousands and thousands of these images in my computer. So I pulled out ones that related to the storyline of the book and scenes in the book. So she had those to use for her research, and she did some research on her own as well. And when we got her first sketches, I was at Brethren Press at the time for a meeting to talk about marketing. We were just absolutely over-the-top excited about her work. She has a way of capturing emotion, well, like the Children's War blog said, in humans and animals as well. She's a horse lover. She has a horse, so um, she has a dog, and that dog was the model for the dog that's in the book. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I, I just am so excited that she was the one. She's just done a wonderful job of capturing the historical context. And I want to read for you from an email that I got from a friend of mine in Poland. I had sent a copy of the book to her, And she is a doctoral student in architectural history, a professional woman who works in curating a historical exhibit for the Solidarity Movement there in Poland. And I had met her in 2013 when I traveled over to Poland to see where Grandpa had been and the Seagoing Cowboys, where they had been. And she was very interested in my photographs, the Cowboys photographs that I have in my collection. And wants to put on, she and another professional woman there, want to put on a photo exhibition there in Gdansk because unbeknownst to me, here I was holding this piece of missing Gdansk history, which was Gdansk after World War II. So we developed this relationship, and when I sent her the copy of this book, She emailed me after she read it, and uh, this is a wonderful accolade to Claire. It says, my favorite picture is the one with the street of Gdansk and a group of kids. Although the context of the picture is tragic, there is a lot of hope and good energy between the seagoing cowboy and the barefoot kids, like a light in a tunnel in a post-war world. And that just epitomizes, I think, how Claire helped me accomplish what I set out to do with this book, which was to help children in a gentle way understand the effects of war. We see a lot of things on TV now that wouldn't have been the case back then for the seagoing cowboys. And you hope that, as cynical as we are in our information age, that people's hearts still go out to those who are hungry and need Mm. to be fed and those who have their farms destroyed and their pots shot full of holes, as is the case in a place like Darfur. It's like food, that's a war. You make war on the animals. We know what happened with the uh, American Indians and the conquistadors and them targeting their livestock. I mean, that's an important part. It's easy to forget This was originally the vision of a man named Dan West to ship this livestock to countries devastated by the war. Who was he, Dan West, and how did his relief project endure even after 1947? Two years in, I was surprised to read the book myself and say, oh, whoa, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration is going to disband and Mm -hmm. those 44 nations behind it are just going to stop helping. It seems like it was doing a great job, especially with the Cold War looming and the Berlin airlift and the Marshall Plan, things like that. So who was Dan West and how does he come up with this idea? 
Dan West was a staff member of the Church of the Brethren. He had been sent to Spain in 1937 as the Church of the Brethren representative to a Quaker relief program during the Spanish Civil War. I mean, they were there as the actual war was going on, providing relief to the mostly women and children who were affected by the war. In the process of observing infants being given a very limited supply of reconstituted powdered milk, basically on a triage basis, infants that weren't gaining weight were just taken off the list to die, he was troubled by that, as were his colleagues. And the idea developed, why don't we send cows to Spain? We've got plenty of cows on our farms back home. So Dan hung on to that idea. And after he got home, he just relentlessly promoted it to anybody who would listen, churches, neighbors, government officials. So it took four years. But the Northern Indiana District Men's Work of the Church of the Brethren finally adopted the plan in April of 1942, which was in the midst of the war, of World War II. So animals couldn't be shipped across the Atlantic at that point in time. So the first shipment was made in 1944 to Puerto Rico. And then when the war ended in Europe in May of 1945, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Administration, which had been formed during the war to provide relief, knew about the Heifer Project because <laughs> M.R. Ziegler, the executive of the Brethren Service Committee that had adopted it as a national program for the church, had approached UNRWA to ask if they would ship the Heifer Project animals, UNRWA shipments. So UNRWA hadn't originally planned on sending any live cargo at all, but they saw the need as they began to get requests from the countries on what they needed. The Brethren had a problem that they didn't have ships available because you know, the war was still going on in the Pacific, so all the ships were under the War Shipping Administration. UNRWA had the problem that they didn't know where they would get the cattle tenders to take care of the livestock that they wanted to ship. So they made an agreement with the Church of the Brethren, with the Brethren Service Committee, that UNRWA would ship the Heifer Project animals free of charge, and the Brethren Service Committee, in turn, would recruit all of the cattle tenders needed UNRWA's livestock shipments. So the Seagoing Cowboy Program was born under the auspices of the Brethren Service Committee. And after UNRWA disbanded then in 1947, the Heifer Project was at a really critical juncture because they were short on cash. <laughs> they could easily just have blessed what they had done and terminated the program. But the seagoing cowboys really helped Heifer be able to continue because they came home from their trips telling their stories of what they had seen in Europe to their newspapers, to schools, to churches. And they came from all over the country. So, you know, all over the country, people were hearing their stories. And these stories, plus all of the volunteers, heifer had been built on the backs of volunteers who raised the heifers and transported them across the country and raised the money for the program. So those two aspects, the volunteers and the seagoing cowboys and their stories, 
helped give the momentum then that kept the heifer project going. And their first shipment after UNRWA in 1947 was to Japan, to an enemy country. It was a shipment of 25 bulls, and then shipments of goats followed to Japan and to Okinawa, and shipments of chicks and goats to Korea, and then a whole decade of shipments in the 1950s to Germany to help Germany rebuild because at the end of World War II, the agreement that was reached by the Allies was that the Eastern European countries would be allowed to send any people of German heritage that lived there, that maybe had lived there for generations, back to Germany. So Germany, with their new government, had some 10 to 12 million of these German descendants to resettle. It was to those people who had been farmers that the Heifer Project gave their animals to help Germany rebuild. It's been an incredible organization through the years and continues to be. The back cover of The Seagoing Cowboy bears the sentence fragment, A long time ago when I was looking for adventure. Whether it's with Heifer International or reading The Seagoing Cowboy, I hope readers will plan for an adventure and maybe be inspired to help those impacted by war and famine. Yeah, the biggest payoff for me has been the response of the families of the Seagoing Cowboys and the Cowboys themselves. I just Um, It kind of chokes me up because I get letters of appreciation or comments of appreciation from the families of the cowboys thanking me for having written this book that helps their children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren to be able to understand what their ancestor had done. And I think the biggest compliment that I've gotten has been from one of the cowboys And if I may, I'll just read you a piece of a note that he sent me. I had a wonderful book launch party where seven seagoing cowboys were able to be there. And he was one of those and took his book home and read it the next day. And this was his comment to me. He said, what a compelling story and so beautifully illustrated. If I didn't know better, I'd say you made the trip yourself. It is so accurate and has so much feeling in it with so little commentary. As I read and looked at it, my eyes teared up. It was so real. A great story for my grand and great-grandchildren, an experience of 71 years ago. 8.30 a.m., he picked this up again the next morning. I have just looked at the book again and again. The tears came. It is so real. The trip to the port, New Orleans for us. Prior to that, the decision to delay our wedding to allow the trip the horse in the stall for loading, and he goes on just sharing his own, the memories that this book evoked in him of his own experience. That one comment alone has made the 14-plus years that I've been at this worth every minute of it. Well, Peggy, I think those are perfect words to leave everybody with. A moving story, and you may have a cowboy sitting in your family tree that you don't even know about. This is a story that slipped underneath the radar, but it was the very real story of thousands of people going to do their bit. As you said, many conscientious objectors 
At the end, 200,000 mules, horses, and heifers make the trip with the seagoing cowboys. Think about the impact that even one horse has. Think of what a cow means to people. Think of the milk. Think of the cheese. Think of the beef. Think of the husbandry. You can take them and have them stud and get revenue from that. It's such an important story. It's a forgotten story. And I thank you very much for writing The Seagoing Cowboy to teach us all about it. Thank you very much, Dean. I really appreciate your support of the book. Again, the book is The Seagoing Cowboy. And although it's not for sale on Amazon yet, you can pick up your copy at brethrenpress.com. As always, however, we hope you will click through the Amazon.com banner on our homepage whenever you want to make a purchase from Amazon. It helps keep our show afloat, and we get a small percentage of every purchase you make. Once again, my thanks to Peggy Reif Miller for joining me and for sharing the inspiring story of men like her grandfather, who left the comforts of home to help people caught up in World War II rebuild their lives. Visit SeagoingCowboys.com and check out the illustrator's work at ClaireEwart.com and let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at HistoryDean or at Facebook.com slash HistoryAuthor. That's it for this week's installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for Classical Wisdom Wednesday, History in Five Friday, and next Monday's all-new interview. And remember, if you do subscribe to us on iTunes, please take a minute to leave us a review. Thanks so much for time traveling with us, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east, sign west, sign things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the rain.